Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Hey everyone, this week's episode of Talk Easy is supported by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional films from around the globe. Each day, Mubi introduces a new hand-picked gem, and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a brand new festival favorite, or a critically acclaimed masterpiece, there's always a perfectly curated selection of films to discover. Try it for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash talk easy all right let's get to evelyn king remix Corey, make sure you include that part for me kindly the like all right let's get to that evelyn king remix because it's a remix of an evelyn king song Corey, did you know that evelyn champagne king it's called the show is over and the irony is that it's how our show begins include that too if you want i don't know all right there it is Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of conversations with the people shaping your culture today, and I'm Sam Fragoso. This week on the program, we have the wonderful actress and writer, Zoe Kazan. Um, it is one of my favorite episodes that we have recorded, and yet I have to admit that um, I've been dreading this intro, and been dreading even doing the show um, after this week. I haven't said that out loud to anyone, I don't think. And um, I'm not going to give a long-winded preamble to, to all of this. I know I've listened to other podcasts that have done it so much more interestingly and, and passionately. Um, if you are not listening to the show, still processing with the Wesley Morris 
and uh, Jenna Wortham, I would, I would urge you to seek that out. Um, what's hard is that nothing seems to matter right now. Nothing at all. Shows you like the films you watch. All those things that were always trivial are really, really trivial now. I keep trying to watch Cheers as a way to make myself <laughs> feel better. Um, but even that seems to not be working. And I've seriously considered this whole week whether there's value or purpose to doing this podcast. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be despondent. I'm not even that frustrated. I, I'm mortified and shocked and a little scared like everyone else. Um, and I don't know if this podcast means anything. I'm not sure writing about film or, or culture or TV has much value right now, but I have to believe that what we're trying to do here, at least on a weekly basis, what Corey, myself, Dave, Krishna, Maria, Ian, everyone who helps make this show possible, I think what we're all trying to do is create a weekly program where two people sit down in a room, generally people who don't know each other, and attempt to have a meaningful dialogue where both of us are vulnerable, both of us are a little afraid, and um, maybe now more than ever that is exactly what we need. Maybe we need maybe we need more reaching out to the other side. Maybe we need more. It's not even about empathy. It's about just talking, just trying to understand someone in a in a sincere way to look someone in the eye and feel what moves them, what hurts them, who they love, why they love them, what they love, why they continue living. Those conversations are not always the most enjoyable, <laughs> but they do seem to be the ones that I remember and are meaningful and of value. So we're going to continue doing the podcast um, in the hopes that someone I have on can tell me what the hell we're supposed to be doing with our lives. Um, I hope, I hope we get that advice at some point. I would love that. I would love to figure that equation out. Um, so I, I, I note all this because this conversation we had with Zoe, uh, was done three weeks ago. It was when I was in New York for a week, figuring out whether I could potentially live there one day. It was a strange trip. Um, and this was, this was maybe a highlight. I had never met Zoe before. Um, you have seen her work in all kinds of things. Um, Ruby Sparks, what if she has written films? She has acted in so much more. Um, she's in Fracture. She's in Revolutionary Road. She's in the new film, The Monster, put out by A24. And she's also in this play called Love, 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 which you can see at the Roundabout Theater through December 18th. Um, she's a particularly vocal person on Twitter. And um, it was a fascinating conversation. But it was one that happened before the election. And I, and I don't mean to sound so caustic or apocalyptic about things, but um, <laughs> there does seem to be like a 
pre-election, post-election life that everyone I know is living in. So this is before the election, where I did ask her, what is she going to do if Donald Trump wins? And we both laughed and thought, oh my God, there's no way that's going to happen. That's No, no, that's not going to happen. Don't worry, Sam. And um, it has happened. And so I hope you enjoy this this, this conversation with Zoe. Um, please do support her great play uh, in New York if you live in the area. And follow her on Twitter because she is someone who is, you know, we're going to have to rally behind people to make this work. Um, and she is a voice worth rallying behind. Someone who is interested in the betterment, I think, of everyone. And um, she's an inspiring person. So anyway, that is my spiel. Um, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. So finally, here is Zoe Kazan. We can start what I ate. (laughs) Yeah. What did you you eat today? What did I eat today? Yeah, sure. Why not? I had a half a bagel for breakfast with butter and tomato. Are you a breakfast person? Like, do you always eat breakfast? No, but when I'm doing this show, I tend to try to eat beforehand. And then I was still hungry. So I went to Nam Pang and I got a tofu banh mi before the show. And then just now I had some rice and beans and guacamole from the deli around here. This is really healthy. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad well, you think well, so. It's versus, pretty carb heavy. Is it? Yeah, I'm a pretty carb heavy okay, person. Well, you have to understand my idea of healthy is Which like, is what? Like looking at a salad, but not right. actually eating the salad. Right, right. Well, you just moved to LA, so everything will be different soon. Is that is that uh, is that what it is? Soon you're going to be like that woman, um, Amanda Chantal Bacon, who runs Moon Juice. <laughs> you're going to be like living on like like spirit dust and sex powder. <laughs> is that why you left LA? <laughs> no, I left to go to school. Okay, so let's backtrack. You were born in 1983 mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Was it okay there? Like, what what's LA like in the 80s? Uh, I don't really remember. I was born at the end of 83. So by the time the 80s ended, I was only six. Um, I uh, So you spent your childhood there. I did. I, I grew up right. I grew up on the cusp of Venice Beach. It was really weird when I was a kid. There were a lot of like, um, like there was a big homeless population and there weren't the resources like Governor Reagan totally fucked um, the mental health um, <laughs> institutions in California. And so there just weren't proper resources for people to get help. And so there was like a pretty scary homeless population. And um, like we had three vacant lots on our block that were all tent cities basically. Um, and now it's nothing like that. Now it's like the bougiest area possible. Mm. But my parents are still there. So you saw that. But like I wasn't allowed to play in my front yard. I wasn't allowed to ride my bike down the street. Really? Would mm-hmm. you ask your parents like, hey, I can I... Can I go out there? No, it wasn't like that. It was just like kind of baseline safety stuff. Like we didn't trick or treat in my neighborhood because there were like there weren't a lot of family houses. So we'd go to like a fancy neighborhood to trick or treat. Mm. And now the neighborhood my parents live in that I grew up in is the fancy neighborhood. Ah. So that's it's, just like a It's kind of weird change. how that happens. Yeah, it is. It's strange. What do your parents think about that? What? What do your parents think about the transformation? Um, I think they're pretty happy. Their property values have gone up oh, <laughs> a yeah, lot. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, it's just like that. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think they're into it. Like, you know, they're older now and like it's nice for them to have nice restaurants and bakeries around them. Mm-hmm. They're both screenwriters and they both work from home, so they don't drive their cars a lot. So to have places that they can walk to and get like a nice tea or something is nice for them. They're both screenwriters? Yeah. So growing up, are you like watching them write and then <laughs> see like that seems like one writer's enough. In yeah. A family. I guess so. I didn't know anything else, so it doesn't seem weird to me. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think that I think I got a kind of like healthy or maybe cynical uh, early viewpoint on the industry of like, yes, it's romantic and creative, but also like there's so much of it that's just like trying to get this producer to understand why you don't want to take their notes or like mm. trying to make this director happy so you can get your film made or all the politics of it and all the daily grind and daily heartbreak. And, you know, that was the stuff that really got talked about around the dinner table, the way that other people would talk about office politics or something, you know? So I feel like I, when I started working, I didn't have like a big dreamy idea of what it would mean. I did have some dreamy ideas, but I think I was disabused of some of them before I even started Mm. in a way. What were the dreamy ideas? I think that there was a part of me that was like, like looked at like the movies from the seventies and some of those women like Karen Black or Ellen Burstyn or Colleen Dewhurst, who like I looked up to, or even like Julie Christie, people like that, who are more like movie stars and less like character actors. And I thought like, oh, to be a woman in Hollywood and be an actor and like want to play those character parts, like those parts will be there eventually. If I work hard enough and if I um, have enough success, those kinds of parts will be there. And it's just not really 100% true. Like one of those parts comes around once in a while. Um, for me, they've come more often on stage than on film. But as an industry, those kinds of roles aren't in abundance mm. anymore. Like you can see it when you look at very often the best actress race is this person's wife, that person's wife. It's not truly the lead of the movie. Uh. So like movies like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which they just said to Ellen Burstyn, like, what do you want to (laughs) make? Who do you want to make it with? Like that kind of thing happens so rarely now. It happens for like three women. Mm. And, And I think it was always hard for women, but even looking back further at like actors like Barbara Stanwyck or Catherine Hepburn, like, I feel like there used to be a path where like really powerful women could have a way of exercising their power in a way that was interesting to them. And I think what you see a lot now is really powerful women exercising their power by buying into like Marvel franchises. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not why I, it's not what I wanted for myself. And it's not, that wasn't the dream when I first started Mm. out. And I feel like that was, that was like a romantic notion that like over the 10 years of my career, I've sort of had to come to terms with. Mm. Before that dream, like in high school, what was your headspace like? Were you thinking like, oh, I want to do that? I think um, I was like a very dreamy kid. Um, I was... What does that mean? Like I I was not... Like my parents chose not to put me in a lot of extracurricular activities. I, I wanted to daydream a lot. Like, I'd come home from school, and I'd get a big box of Schneider's pretzels, 
and I would sit in my love seat in the living room with my legs like over one side of the seat and my head over the other side of the seat and I would just eat pretzels and daydream for hours. Like it sounds great. It was great. It was totally so, great. And like like I read more than I I mean like you know I I I still have my library cards memorized by number like Really? Yeah. What is it? I can't tell you. Why? What is that going to do? No one's going to know that. <laughs> Zero four nine two two one nine. Yeah. So I was like a, you know, I was like a weird kid. <laughs> so I can like barely remember my social security number. Well, there you go. Um. Anyways, because of that, I really wanted to be like a writer, like a poet, or long before I wanted to be an actor. Um. And then, uh, that sort of shifted for me when I I went to a new school for high school. I went to one school for middle school, and I went to a new school for high school, and. Uh, my theater class was required to audition for the school play. And I had like a transcendent experience auditioning for this play and came home just from the audition and was like, oh, I found what I'm going to do with my life. My parents were naturally very concerned um, and not <laughs> super happy. What did they say to you when you got home that day? I think they were like, you know, I I don't really remember, but I think it the the sort of line that they had was like we're so glad you're having fun you know <laughs> that kind of thing it's like okay that's nice but, uh... yeah yeah and you know i think part of it is that they they knew how what a hard profession it was and i don't think they i mean i don't think any parent who actually knows what it entails in their right mind would want their child to do that mm. um but then i got cast in that play and i started acting in school plays at school and like things really changed for me like i really like reoriented my priorities and i think like i didn't know what i wanted what uh, desiring to be an actress seemed like such a big thing and i knew the actors that i looked up to who were people like the people i was talking about are people like john cazal or jason robards like there was like a, a sort of cadre of people that i looked up to um but I didn't have a good sense of like how a person would begin in the world. Mm. Um, I wanted to go to conservatory and my parents were very against that. I think they really wanted to make sure that I was using my mind. Um, were you a lonely kid? N- no, I wasn't. I'd, I had not a huge group of friends, but I had a, like a best friend that was like a tied at the hip. Huh. Absolute like... We didn't go to the bathroom without each other, best friends, <laughs> my friend Sophie. Those are good. Yeah. And then I had another really close friend, my friend Max, who I'm still really close with. And then like I went to a really small, weird, progressive elementary school. And so there were only like 30 kids in my class. So everybody had to get along. Like you can't go to a school that small and like ostracize people. And there were a lot of like eccentric kids eccentric, at my school. Yeah. So I, I didn't feel lonely. I felt lonely in high school, but I oh. wasn't like a lonely little kid. Why in high school? Um, Because I went to the school for middle school that was like for really smart girls. It was a girl's school and I was really miserable and it was like a horrible place um, psychologically, just like terrible. They've gotten in a lot of trouble recently for having um, like girls touched by teachers and stuff like that. It's not 
it's not a good place. Like, Did um, that happen to you? Stuff like that? No, no. But like every girl I knew had like an eating disorder, had a cutting issue or had a drug problem. Like nobody knew was happy or almost all the girls I knew. As I don't want a blanket statement. Some people were happy, but I didn't know very many of them. Wow. Um, and I, I just don't, it was not a good place for me psychologically. So my parents pulled me out of there and they put me in this other school. That's why I transferred to schools in high school. And I transferred to a school that was really lovely. And I'm really glad I went there and I like found my passion going there and I had wonderful teachers, but the student population, I didn't have like a ton in common with. It was a lot of kids who were like, like the LA private school scene is really weird, and there's like so, there are like so schools, to me, so there are like schools for like the really smart kids, and then there are schools for like the really athletic kids, and then the schools for like the burnout artistic kids, and then there's the school that I went to, which is like it's now academically very competitive and athletically very competitive. But when I went there, it was like for nice kids. It was like for kids who are like right in the middle, like not in a bad way, like. It was like well-rounded kids. Yeah. Like I just one of the- I love imagining the idea. Like the admission process is like, uh, well, how nice is Zoe? We need to know. <laughs> they did. They cared about that, and they also really cared about like having well-rounded students. Like one of the things they talked about was like, we have kids who like play lacrosse in the fall and do the spring musical. Like mm-hmm. that's their sort of like model, or that was their model kid. And I felt really like other than most of the people around me. Um, this was also like the late nineties, early two thousands. And like, um, (laughs) like the kind of like high school model that was being seen in like pop culture was like, I know what you did last summer. Like she's all that clueless, you know, it was like, do you remember she's all that? Yeah, I do remember she's all that. Um, but like those kind of models of like, there was still this, I feel like, I feel like by the time, my sister's only three years younger, but I feel like by the time that she was in high school, there was already a kind of like hipster counterculture thing happening that mm. like kids were wearing skinny jeans and like, like painting their nails black. And when I went to high school, like everything felt like very in line. Like all the girls wanted the exact same pair of jeans. No one wanted to look different from any other person. And like I w- was really different mm. and like not, not in a like, smoking cigarettes cool way like yeah. i was just like an odd ball you weren't and smoking cigarettes and <laughs> no i was such a good kid um i didn't do any of that <laughs> <laughs> um you know i was just lonely and i was really serious like so serious mm. about Everything. nerdy stuff yeah yeah like i was really annoyed in my english class when people would like you know not take the, not take F. Scott Fitzgerald seriously. I was like, why, like, why didn't you do the reading? This is great literature, you know? <laughs> I'm like a lot, I'm a lot less serious at 33 than I was at 16, uh-huh. for sure. I like that you still have that detail lodged in the back of your head. Well, I did this thing my senior year. This is so embarrassing, but, um, I did this thing where I, I decided I was tired of being lonely. Okay. And I decided... By the way, way, before you go on, can I just say, like, how great of a decision or, like, sort of realization that is for you to have at, like, 18? (laughs) 17. 17, where you're just like, I'm tired of being lonely. Yeah. That's like, I don't know. That's something. That's a big deal, in my my opinion. I guess it was. Yeah, I felt tired of being lonely. And so I thought, I'm just going to 
stop raising my hand in class. I'm only going to raise my hand once per class. And I'm going to stop talking about the things that other people don't care about. And I'm going to try to talk about the things other people care about. And it worked. And like suddenly people liked me and I had a boyfriend and like, I didn't, I was so like, I really went my senior year. I feel like I really went on this like mission of just sort of hiding myself in plain sight. I started wearing jeans. I had never, like I'd never worn a pair of jeans in my entire life. I was like, okay, I'll do this. I went and bought two pairs of guest jeans. I was like, here we go. <laughs> I'm going to pretend for a year. I'm going to get through this. And it really worked. I mean, my happiness level went up. It wasn't like imaginary. Um, but it was so extreme that like when I, I didn't tell people where I was applying to college. Like I didn't want people to think of me in any way as different than them. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of sad, but I do think it was an important, like you said, realization to have. You felt like people wouldn't be into who you really were? I just felt like I had been who I really was for three years and just felt lonely. And like, I think, yeah, I I felt like I had to pretend to be someone else in order to have just the, just like a very, just to have an easy year. Yeah. Just to have a year that wasn't senior year. Yeah. But then afterward, how'd you feel like when that year ended? Um, I think, you know, like college for me was like this beacon in the dark for a long time, like years of being Mm. like, I'm going to get to college and things are going to be different. And, um, they were, I mean, you know, in some ways they weren't because that whole, like, wherever you go, there you are a thing. But did you feel like you got to reinvent yourself when you went to college? Um, That's what I was so excited about. Were you? Well, I was just like, yeah, I can no more high school. I'd moved to a different. Did you start wearing like a three piece suit? It's only for right now. <laughs> Thanks for. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, I, I remember, like, I went acno- through a very that was both acknowledgement and mocking. I think <laughs> this is my favorite. You look nice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you look nice too. Thank you. Um, I think I was. I think I went through like a very brief, like a week long thing where I was like, I guess I should wear makeup. I'm in college now, um, and and then it passed. I. I, I I think that there was the biggest shock to me was I went to Yale and I thought that when I got there, there would be like a hundred people like me. And when I got there, I was like, oh no, they're like a bunch of really smart people. A lot of people that are smarter than I am, but just because we're all smart doesn't mean that we're all smart the same way or that we're going to get along. Uh, but I found great friends there. Yeah, I, I I liked college. I had a good time. Mm. I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like I reinvented myself. I felt like I got like a chance to be myself. Mm. That sounds nice. It was nice. It was really nice. Mm. Yeah, it was really nice. <laughs> I just remember like putting stuff on my body and being like, "This is what I'm wearing today." Like. Fuck you. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> what were you putting out? What? Like crazy shit. I had a really fun time. Like I wish my favorite could outfit. I see the smile on your face right now. But this <laughs> my is favorite good. outfit. My, my favorite outfit my freshman year was um, these like black knee high 
like anime boots. They were like like big chunky platform boots. Um, and this is amazing. <laughs> a black tights and a wraparound white and hot pink zebra print sequin <laughs> dress and my great grandmother's fur hat. And I wore that like once a week at least. That is bold. <laughs> it was. That was bold. I felt like released in some way. Hmm. Also like uh liberated and like in a great way. Yeah, I did. I mean, there were also unhappy things. I got really depressed that year and that was hard. Which it, year? The the first year of college? Yeah. But that was like a chemical thing. That wasn't like circumstantial. Hmm. Uh it was my first like seasonal effective thing and it hit me really hard and cuz growing up in southern california it's basically nice all the time and mm-hmm. i just like you know i i i mean like i'm pretty open with this like i've struggled with depression for like a big chunk of my life and it's not like thank god for me not something that's like a um a a, a constant burden yeah. um but when it comes i'm always really shocked and that was the first like big wave of depression of my life other than maybe when I was 13 and like it really, you know, knocked me off my feet in some way. And then in other ways I was really happy. Like I made the friends with the woman who's still my best friend and like got to act in all these plays with people. Like I remember when I went away to school, my mom said to me, like, you're going to end up being like a spear carrier your first year. So like be prepared, (laughs) like you're a big fish in a small pond now. And then when I got to school, like immediately I got, cast in like really nice parts and felt like really embraced by the theater community there and felt like some sort of affirmation. You felt like you were talented? Yeah, I did. I mean, (laughs) look, I wish that I walked around now with the confidence that I did at like 16, 17, 18 years old. Like I had so much confidence in myself. (laughs) I thought that my mom was wrong when she told me you're going to be a spear carrier it's probably why she told me you're going to be a spear carrier mm-hmm. is because i was like i'm really good at this yeah. and like everybody's better watch their back um but don't you think it's like i always find that the better you get at something the more doubt you have well the more no I, well doubt yeah that naturally that but also you just since you're better at it you see what's you actually know what's possible right and it's like oh man no i'm terrible Yeah, I think there's some of that. I think the other part of it, though, is that, like, if you don't have that feeling about yourself when you're very young, like, no one else has that feeling about you. You have to be the person having that feeling about you. Mm. As soon as, as soon as I started getting work, like, my confidence ratios started to shift. Like, I didn't have to be my own best advocate anymore. And so I wasn't. I also think if you don't gr- grow out of that a little bit, like you're a sociopath for life, <laughs> like a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes I think we're, we're all a little bit sociopaths for like joining this industry in any way. You definitely have like some brand of crazy. Okay. <laughs> you're telling that to me? I No, I think a person. I think a like, person who, who goes into, especially like who decides to be an actor like there's um, there's definitely something like at least a little <laughs> bit wrong with you what's your brand of crazy mm, i don't know but i do think that the it's like um you know that definition of insanity that's like you do the same behavior thinking that there will be different results oh yeah 
Okay. So that's a little bit like being an actor. Like you just audition all the time and you get rejected for things mm. and you get right back up there for the next audition and you th- have to believe that you're going to get it this time. Mm. Like same behavior, same results. Like, but somehow you have to believe that there will be different results. Well, it's a bit of like tricking yourself into There's thinking. There's so much um, suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. Willing uh, suspension of disbelief. Is that healthy? Um, I think it has, I think it is healthy for actors because if, mm. if you don't have that, then you just like fall into a pit of despair. You have to, you have to have like hope. <laughs> you have to have hope. Um, do I think it's healthy in general? Probably not, but I don't think this is like a particularly healthy profession. So any way that you can carve out some space for mental health, do it. Do that. Did you go on a lot of auditions leaving college? Yeah, I um I wanted to go to drama school and I had applied out of college and I hadn't gotten in, but the guy who ran the drama school had said like go away and live a year of life, like have some life experience and come back and like I can't guarantee you a spot, but I'm telling you I think there will be a spot for you. Hmm. So I decided to move to New York for the year and I just like sublet people's apartments and I just gotten out of a relationship and I dated a lot of people and like drank a lot of drinks and (laughs) lived in a lot of different neighborhoods and went to acting class and did a lot of weird jobs. And then somewhere in that year I had gotten a play workshop. A friend of mine worked for this theater company. She got me an audition at the theater company for a play workshop I booked that thing, and then the woman who became my agent saw me in that play workshop reading like the presentation and offered to work with me. And I was like, I'm going back to drama school at the end of the year. And she was like, just work with me anyways. And then I started getting work during that period uh-huh. of time. And then I got into school and was like six weeks away from going and started having panic attacks and like had to have a... Um, like I come to Jesus with myself about what I really wanted um, and how I learn, which is like, I'm a very like teacher pleasing student. Like I really want to, I really want the love of my professors. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I thought, Oh, I'm going to go for three years and please teacher. Like this is not actually the best way for me to learn. So I, turned down my slot and then like three weeks later I booked my first play in New York. Mm. Um, and then after that, everything kind of changed for me because I was well reviewed in this play and then I started getting more work and yeah, I, I, after that it was like very fast, but the, the first year, yeah, was a lot. I mean, <laughs> like it's a lot of auditions for a long time. But that first year was a lot of auditions and not booking things for the most part and living on the admiration of casting directors. Casting directors saying, it's down to you and one person and I'm going to remember you and bring you in again. And that was the thing that I like held close to my heart at night when I felt sad. Do you hate talking about yourself? Um, I like talking like this. This is nice. Okay. Uh, I think I don't like the, I think I, 
Like, I don't like massages because they're one-sided. Like, I don't like paying for a massage. Yeah. Yeah. I feel so, guilty. No, feel- no. Yeah, I feel guilty. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, like, I would rather have this conversation with you in a way that is more two-sided, but I... I am very comfortable with you. It's totally fine. You can ask me anything you want. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Do you feel like you needed that year? Yeah. Of, of crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I mean, I really do. It was more like two years. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I did. I think I did. You were what, like 20? I was 22, 23. Um, yeah, I was 21 when I graduated college. I think I needed to do some growing up. And I also think, frankly, like, I think that I was, I had the big longing in me, like a real big longing to be an actor, to be in the world, to be living my adult life, to know myself, to have like a true sense of myself. And I was in such a rush to have all those things and know all those things that I was sort of like putting on a person that I wasn't for those years. Like I felt the pressure of having to be an adult and I kind of like closed down around it in a way. And I think that some of the kind of more destructive behavior of those years for me was like, a byproduct of not being really in touch with myself. Hmm. But I think that by doing all that and being really risky with myself, I sort of was able to come into my own skin in a different way. Hmm. Were your parents concerned or like, what did they feel during that time? Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I think they were concerned. I think I had, I think I, I think I had, ha- I had them worried for a few years. Um, also because I was like, my depressions are really bad. Like the hi- highs are really high and the lows are really low. And I was in therapy, but it took a while for me to find a therapist that I could really connect with. And it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. yeah. And then when I did, things really changed for me. I saw a therapist for five years, I think, who was really amazing for me. Mm. Did, a, did a lot to help me. You stopped? Mm-hmm. What is that? How How was that for you? It was like really tough for me. It was really hard. I felt like I was, it was felt like a breakup. Yeah. I remember, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I just like, I remember the last time and I like, because you have like the 50 minutes, that's yeah. what it is. I always hated that it was 50 minutes and not an hour. Mine was two hours. <laughs> it was two hours? Two hours oh once my. a week. Wow. Um, that sounds nice. It that was so- nice. It sounds exhausting. It was. It was. But I really liked it. It was like I got all the bullshit out in the first hour and then I would have like nothing see, left to say and then suddenly all this other stuff would be there. Oh, see, that's nice. Okay, it so we So it was 50 minutes and then it's the last one. And so the first 20 minutes is like same bullshit. Yeah. And then I'm like, what the fuck? What, this is ending? Like, we're going to... I remember, I just, like, wept the last, like, 10 minutes yeah. of that entire thing. And then uh, I'm going to refrain from doing so 
now yeah uh, but go like, ahead no. cry <laughs> uh, so, and the people who listen to the show are not familiar <laughs> with that people I, people have come on and cried so it's good uh good. no but like i cried and then it was just like i guess i'll see you around i don't know i don't know and then we hugged and then i left and i walked down the street and i remember it was so fucking cold and it wasn't even cold. It was August in right. San Francisco. It wasn't that cold. Right. August in San Francisco is pretty cold. It's like it can, <laughs> it can be, but like it felt like right. here right now. Yeah. And then, I don't know. First week was hard because you didn't go on that. I, didn't, I went on right. Tuesdays. I forgot. I went away to do a job and I just never came back. Hmm. Like I would oh, stop. You didn't, you didn't have a goodbye. Not really. Like, no. <sighs> wow. Yeah, I'm pretty. <laughs> I'm pretty bad at saying goodbye. Um, I was not. I did not break up with people well ever. <laughs> um, what would you do? You'd just be like, I, I mean, various <laughs> bad behaviors. Um, but uh, but in this case, I I had been thinking about stopping for a while, and when I came back, for, I was away for a while for this job, and when I came back, I just never like reestablished contact. And I regret that because I feel like it would have been better for me to be responsible. But there's another part of me that was like so enmeshed emotionally with my therapist that I just don't know how I would have stopped any other way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they would have said, you know. I don't know what she would have said, but I I was like, you know, I definitely like did a full transference number on that relationship. <laughs> And I, like, you know, I, I don't know. That was how I did it. Taking a break here. Um, I mentioned earlier that I've been watching Cheers pretty consistently as a sort of coping mechanism. Um, but there's something more entertaining than that that I've seen, and I'm going to definitely rewatch. And that is something on Mubi. It's called Miami Connection. I don't know if you've seen Miami Connection, but if you haven't, you absolutely should as a form of absolute unadulterated escapism. Um, I really like their long line that I'm going to read here. And it's a, a joyous celebration of the B-movie and an overdose of 80s aesthetics lend Miami Connection part of its unique charm. Unique is, is a good word to describe its charm because it is singularly crazy. It's a symphony of bad taste, goofy humor, stunning martial arts and is likely to be the greatest cult movie you've yet to see maybe some hyperbole but but also maybe true um so i would recommend seeing that even if movie wasn't sponsoring this week's episode um you should check that out and you can do so at movie.com slash talk easy for a free 30-day trial all right back to zoe We like skipped a whole part of like yeah we did good stuff that you've done in your career. That's exciting, right? Where do you want to go to? Where do I want to go to? Yeah, where do you want to go to? Where in this conversation? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't care. You're like we skipped a whole bunch. Where do you want to go to? I don't know. Ruby Sparks. Yeah, um, that was another example of me. I want to like, go honestly wherever you want to go. Trying to preserve my brain. <laughs> um, yeah, I was doing this play. For a long time, I had thought of the idea, like, 
walking down the street. Yeah. Late at night, I'd seen a mannequin in the trash and thought it was a person and was sort of like, the idea came to me pretty quickly. Like it came to me in the like block and a half from seeing the mannequin to getting home. And I wrote about 25 pages of it, which is something that I do sometimes just to nail an idea down. I'll write the first act so that I don't like lose it to the Mm -hmm. ether. But then I was really busy and I just didn't have the wherewithal to write it at that point. That was like nine months before maybe. Then I was doing this play Paul was away, and I was really bored. The play was only 80 minutes long. It was really fun to do, but it just cost me nothing. Like, it used up none of my brain. It didn't use any of my emotional life. Like, so I decided it would be a good time to write it. I had my own dressing room because I was the only girl in the show, and it was, like, a very sweet little room. So I would go to the theater, like, six hours early, and lock myself in my dressing room and write. I wrote it really quickly. I wrote it in like two and a half weeks. Wow. And um, then I thought, like, it's pretty good. Let's send it to some producers. We did. I met with a bunch of people. And actually, I met with really, really wonderful people who wanted to do it. Um, But most of them said, we're not going to be able to get this movie financed. Like, the majority of them were like, this is going to be really hard with you and Paul acting in it. But, like, I'm up for it, but it's going to be really hard. And Ron Yorkson and Albert Berger were the last producers we met with, and I had really admired their work, and they were the first producers not to say anything like that. They were like, we love this movie. We're going to get it made. We think we should send it to Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. And... We were like, we think we should send it to them. So we brought them onto the projects, Paul and I did. And then we all we went out to John and Val, and they took a couple months to get mm. back to us. And they said yes in October of that year. Mm. I was doing Angels in America off-Broadway. Oh, yeah. And so I did, like, all of our rewrites, like, in my time, like, off stage, <laughs> essentially, like, there would be like 20 minute chunks where I wouldn't be on stage and I would be like back there rewriting. Holy cow. I know. I just didn't have a lot of time. That's crazy. It's a really long play. We were doing both parts of it. So that's like six hours. Um, and I was really tired. Uh, but yeah, between us, between Ron and Albert coming on to the project in June, like, it was only a year until we were in pre-production for the film. Less than a year. We were in pre-production in April of that year. Is that hard to, like, pull that off on set or working that out when you're with the person that you're also with? It was so hard. Like, that seemed exhausting to me. I don't ever want to do that again. I, it was it awful. It didn't seem like something would be fun. No, it was so hard. You know, working-wise, it was great. We had worked together twice before we had done a play together which is how we met and we had done this um we had done meek's cutoff together uh so we were like in the desert in oregon for eight weeks six weeks however long it was and it felt amazing Mm. and like i we already knew how to work together so onset was very harmonious but as soon as we'd get in the car we'd start fighting like immediately like the car door would slam and it would be like we were fighting about the stupidest shit we weren't fighting about work we were fighting about like which route to take to drive home should we get something to eat on the way or should we heat up something frozen uh do we need to get coffee for the morning like 
we didn't, like I kept saying at the time, like, I wish we had a mom with us. Like, I wish we had a wife. Like, we need someone, like a wife in the traditional yeah, yeah, sense yeah, of the yeah. word. Like, I, we need somebody taking care of us. Like, this is so gross, but we ran out of toilet paper and like no one, we had no time to go get it because we were shooting like 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. and then going home and then I was doing rewrites and I had a play going up off Broadway that fall. So I was doing rewrites for the play at night too. So we would like take toilet paper from work or like take out napkins from our takeout like for like 10 days or something. We didn't what? have toilet paper in our house. Yeah. Oh like it was like, it was like so borderline and bad. And then like, I mean, that's really a gross example, but it's just true. Like we were like basic maintenance was like not on the list. Mm. And I was so exhausted and we were shooting nights, which was really hard. But that's when we ran out of toilet paper when we were shooting nights. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was really stressed cause I had to finish rewriting this play, which was like such a nightmare. And, um, yeah, I felt like at the end of my rope. And then I feel like we didn't sort of come back to each other genuinely, like come back to where our relationship had been beforehand for another year. Like it wasn't until we were done promoting the film that I really felt like, oh, there we are again, which is a really long time. That is. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah, it was scary. It was like a year of being like, did we just fuck our relationship to make this film? Hmm. Why do you think you were fighting about like traffic and food and because we were so tired because normally when one of us is work like it's exhausting to make a film it just is like you're working really long hours the amount of energy expenditure that you're making is huge every day like like i've been on three week shoots for movies that feel like they're three months long like it, you like go into a different time zone sort of mm. um and normally it doesn't work out perfectly but normally if one of us is there to take care of the other person, like to make sure there's food on the table when they come home, to make sure that the sheets get washed, to make sure there's toilet paper, like that basic care we sort of always do for each other. And we were both like too stressed out. And then we were also executive producers on the project and making, you know, very involved in a lot of the decision-making and it was our baby. And like, right. there was this feeling of stress. And frankly, like I was doing these rewrites Every day for the film, like I, I thought my duties would be done when we started filming mm. and every day there was something, you know, the location is different than what we imagined. So we have to write the scene to fit the location. This actor doesn't want to say these lines, so we have to write something else. Like I thought my computer wouldn't be on set and it was. So I sort of was wearing three hats all the time and then I'd get in the car and have to be his girlfriend and it was like too many hats. That's too much. Do you think it turned out Okay. Yeah, I'm really proud of it. Um, I feel like I've talked about it so much that in a way it's like not itself to me anymore. Mm. That's the only hard part about putting a movie into the world that you love is that it becomes everybody else's too. And, mm. you know, I, I think there are things about it that got a little lost in translation. Like and what? then, oh, I don't know, just little things. Like, you know, I, I, I love Jonathan and Valerie and they're amazing collaborators. Um, I feel a hundred percent certain that they made my material better. Like I, the thing that I felt at the time was like for every two things I lost, I gained eight that I never would have had in the first place. Mm. 
So the ratio is really good. It's a good ratio. But you're still losing two things. Yeah. So there's a, you know, it's just the control freak part of my brain that's like, the movie's so much better than anything that we could have made without them. Um, and, and, and yet it's also not purely your baby. Like, I think that that is hard. It's hard for me with anything I've written. I've had three plays produced and every single one of them has been painful for me. Even when they've been successful, they've mm. been incredibly painful for me. Like, it's very hard for me to let go. And I think that that was true of our movie, even though it's one of the things I'm most proud of making in this world, and I'm incredibly happy with how it turned out. It's still not the thing that was in your head. Sure. And that is hard. Well, what turned out, at least to me, I rewatched it recently, still really good. Thanks. Still, like, I mean that genuinely thank you i remember being moved when i watched it what i was confused about and i'm sure you remember this but like there's a lot of stuff written about like the manic pixie dream yeah. girl stuff that was hard for me go well, on no why do you think that was well i felt like i was taking on a cultural idea more than a single movie trope mm. I think that's actually like a fairly narrow lens to read the movie through. Like the seed of that movie for me was about the at least probably more than one relationship, but at least one relationship that I had when I was younger where I really like looked to the man I was dating for definition, for mm. self-definition. And I really had a feeling for a long time like, you know, I was... I dated a lot of people that were older than me a lot when I was younger. And I was very unformed in some ways. And like the music that they turned me on to is music I still listen to. And the things that they complimented me about myself were things that I concentrated on. And I feel really shaped by those relationships, at least one of them. And um, I was thinking about that. Like, I was thinking about that funny, like, that weird burden. Like, the original title I had for the movie was He Loves Me. And I felt like this thing of, like, that kind of love, that kind of, like, adoration, the putting on a pedestal the way that Pygmalion does to Galatea. Like, it can be very painful to experience and to not know where your boundaries are and not know where you stop and the other person starts. And I was interested in writing about like a man having to let go of his creation like that. And then I was also thinking about the the experience that I have had, especially writing, but also acting, of feeling like the thing existed outside of me beforehand. Like almost everything I've written has come to me in a flash. Like I've seen the whole thing in my mind before I've gotten any part of it on paper. I usually ruminate for a long time and then write very quickly. Um, and so it feels like magic to me and it feels like it doesn't quite belong to me. And so I wanted to write about that. And so when people talked about this kind of like manic pixie dream girl thing, I was like, it, it felt like suddenly I was like being saddled with this burden that was pop cultural instead of deeply cultural. Mm. Um, and I also felt like they were judging me for being like slight and having big eyes and, 
um, like a quote unquote quirky look, which really bugs me when people say that because I think I just look like a person, but you know, quirky look. Yeah. I don't know. Like I don't look like, um, I don't look like a Victoria's secret model. And like, I think that because of that, people are like, Oh, she's quirky. And I don't think I'm like quirky. I just think I'm a real person. (laughs) Um, and that's part of what I was trying to write about was like, the fact that like this man is putting this woman in this box. And then I felt like all these interviewers were like putting me in this little box. And I had an interviewer for the New York magazine, which is a publication I love. But this woman like told me she had turned her mic off at the end of the interview and then was like, what's with the bandaid? I had a hello kitty bandaid on because I had hurt myself on set right before we had started our press tour, like really badly scraped my elbow and it was super infected. And I was having to change my bandaid like eight times a day. So I'd gotten all these like fun band-aids to make it more fun for myself to change my band-aid. <laughs> and she like wrote about my Hello Kitty band-aid, like what kind of feminist wears a Hello Kitty band-aid, which just like pissed me the fuck off. Like, dude, like you want to talk about feminism, like let's talk about feminism, but don't like spring something at the end of my interview and then like make a deduction of like deduce something about my character based on the fact that I'm just wearing this band-aid. Like call me tomorrow. I'm wearing SpongeBob, you know, like. What a weird... I don't know. I felt really judged. And to be totally honest, I felt judged because I felt like I'm like this young woman. I've written this thing. Like... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You Well, look at like the larger... Like it's everything. You had a year where your relationship that has like been the relationship and through the, throughout yeah. your adult life. Yeah. That was in jeopardy. Yeah. The, First, th- like the biggest thing you've written, working really hard, like your life was crazy, and then to have it result in sort of reduction, like to be reduced down to that. Yeah, it didn't feel good. There's no way that feels good. Yeah. There's no way you couldn't be angry about that. Yeah, I was. But you moved on, I think. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, yes. I think. The reality is you and I know that the movie is good. You and I know this. I think. I think we can agree on it. I do. I think the movie's really good. I'm really proud of it. But also, like, it's the Frank Sinatra, best is yet to come type thing in my head. In my opinion of you. That's nice. Thank you. Am I wrong? Um, I don't know. I think... I, 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 um... When I look back at my earlier writing, all of it, I feel like, oh, I can see a progression. Like, I think each of my plays is better than the one before. I think, like, I just wrote a new play. I think it's definitely better than anything I've written so well, it far. it starts at age six. So hmm. like the, like the n- well, some of that stuff was way better than anything I've written yeah, you now. Can't, you, can't, um, you can't recreate that. But, you know, I think that I don't have, like, a... Um, I definitely don't have a huge desire to look back. Like, I haven't watched Ruby Sparks since it came out. Um, and I don't think I will for a while, at least. Um, and that's not from, like, what we're talking about, like, the painful way in which, like, some people received it. It's from, like, a complete lack of desire to revisit my own work. Mm. Like even like you have to um, review your proofs of your plays to have them published. And like, I will sit on a proof for like a year, a year and a half 
because I don't want to look at it again. Like in a way it's dead to me. It's like looking at like pictures of someone who's died. Like it's the creative process is over and that's hard. Um, yeah, I feel really, I mean, like, you know, as I get older, I feel like the, um, my interest in like, I don't know, like when I first started auditioning, like I would get an, I would get an audition for like a show on the CW and be like so stoked. Just like every audition was exciting to me. Even stuff that I knew I was wrong for or had no interest in at a personal level, like I just wanted to be a working actor, you know, like so badly. Like I remember my very first audition was for Law and Order and I got a call back and I was like, damn, this is as good as it's ever going to get because right now I have like a perfect ratio of like auditioning to callbacks. <laughs> but like if I don't get this, then I'm always going to remember like that it's possible that I'm not going to get it. And then if I do get it, then I'm always going to want to get the job. Like right now, this is the most happy. Like this is the happiest I'm ever going to be. And in some way I was right. Like, like your expectation changes as you get older. But the other thing that's happened for me is that like the target of my happiness has gotten a lot more narrow, but like it used to make me so happy to book any job. And now I feel like a lot more discerning, not because I think I'm like too good for something, but because I feel like my life is worth something. Like I used to not feel like my time was worth more than a job. And now I really feel the opposite. Like, I feel like my life is precious. Like, I'm 33. My parents are getting older. Like, I want to spend time with them. I want to see my friends' kids. I want to, like, be with my partner and get to cook dinner. And that all of that means something to me now. And so what it has meant is that my writing has become, like, a lot more important to me in the last few years, even though I haven't um, put anything into the world in the last few years. I've been writing a lot. Um, and, and that will like today, Paul started production on the movie that we wrote together, this movie wildlife that's based on this Richard Ford book. He's directing it and they started production today in Montana. Um, and like, that'll be the first thing of many that will come. I hope of, of this, of these past few years and the productivity that I felt, but part of the reason that it means more to me now is that it's my own. Like when you make something, even things that I've been really proud of, like Ruby Sparks or like so proud of all of Kittredge and my work in that, like it's not mine truly. Like you give it away. And, and part of the beauty of film is that it's a collaborative medium, right? Like you're receiving the gift of everyone else's imagination too. But it does mean that, you're also at the mercy of everyone else's imagination. And there is something like so wonderful about being, having like a private experience of your work, which you never get as an actor. Like you never get, you never get to be alone with it. Like you're, you're always giving it away, whether it's in the rehearsal room or on stage or in front of a camera, like it's, it's, never just for you but the experience that i have of being in communion with like my imagination in front of my computer feels like totally different mm. that was like a four minute answer <laughs> sorry 
It was really great. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, that you just said everything. Great. Um, <laughs> did you feel like you were giving something away on like what was the original title of What If? The F word. Oh, the F word. Yeah. Um. No, I did not. Did that feel like something like momentous? Like what? What, what was that going into it? You just well, rolled your eyes at me. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Um, uh, go. You know what? I answer it the way that you sh- rolled your eyes at me for. Like, go ahead. Say what the fuck you talking. They're about. They're not all like for the art, right? Okay. Like, I liked the script a lot, or I wouldn't have done it. And a landmaster who wrote it is a good friend of mine, and now we became friends doing that. And. I think his writing is like incredibly good and I couldn't believe that they, they just offered me that part. And I was like, they're sure they want me. Like I was really, I was really engaged by the material. And I think it's, I think it's a really good script. I think it's a good movie and I think it's like a worthwhile, there's nothing not worthwhile about it, but I was burned the fuck out. I was so burnt out when I made that movie. Like I had gone from doing a year plus on and off Broadway. I had done Behanding in Spokane and then I had gone straight into Angels in America and then I had gone straight into pre-production on Ruby Sparks and then I had gone straight into the play that I had produced off Broadway, which was really like emotional terrorism for me. It was a really tough experience. And then I went straight into filming three films. I wrapped the last film, went straight into my Ruby Sparks um, publicity tour. And I went, literally flew from, I flew from that set to my Ruby Sparks publicity tour and from my Ruby Sparks publicity tour to the first day of What If. So I was like dead in the water. Like I should not have been acting. I was, I feel fine about my work in it, but like I didn't have anything left. Like, and I would not have done it if I if like it hadn't been a big opportunity for me. And frankly, if they hadn't been like willing to pay me, they paid me more than anyone has paid me before or since. And so I was like, this will like allow me to do more plays off Broadway and like not work. And like these are all smart people, and I like Mike Douse's work, and like I like Dan Radcliffe, and like I'm just gonna go do it. But when I look back, I'm like. I needed a big fat break. I needed to like go to my parents' house and sleep in my childhood bed and like go for walks and cry and sleep. Like I did not need to be like on a movie set for in that two order? Probably. <laughs> did it also feel that the movie was when it came out, did it like it was pushing that thing we were talking about earlier, like that other people were commenting on, like the manic pixie dream girl? Was it pushing that image? I have no idea. I don't know how to read that. Um, I didn't think that the script was, if the movie was. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think so any more than any movie is like looking at a woman. Hmm. I mean, like, I thought that a big portion of the movie was from her point of view. Um,. I think that she's actually like a more serious character than he is. Yeah. Like she has a real job and a real life and a real boyfriend. And like, no, I don't think it was buying into that. Okay. I think if anybody said it was, it was probably because I'm like 
look young for my age and have big eyes and am diminutive. Like I, hmm. they don't say manic pixie dream girl about tall girls. Wow. I never thought about it like that. They don't. <laughs> You're uh, pretty vocal on social media about like the election right. stuff. So I'm just curious if Donald Trump wins. Yeah. What do you do? Like where, where do you go? Oh God. Well, I don't think I go anywhere, right? Like let's be real about our lives. Like I own my home. I own my apartment. Hmm. Like I don't think I'm going to like move to Canada or France or somewhere. You're in a different spot than I'm because I'm 22. So I don't right. own a home. Right. I mean, in, in a perfect world, I would not stay in this country because I don't think it's going to be a good place to live. I can't stomach the possibility. It's so bad to me that I am like, it like puts like a weight on my heart. I like can't handle it. Um, I think I just have, would just become more vocal. I mean, he scares the shit out of me. Uh, and I'm not even, I think the people that he target, you know, I don't represent the kind of person that he targets the most, but it scares the shit out of me at a personal level. And then it also scares the shit out of me from a level of like the racism and xenophobia and religious intolerance that he preaches. And like, what does that mean for my communities? I mean, like, the community of my friends, and I also mean, like, at a literal level, like, I live across the street from a project, you know, I, those are my neighbors, <laughs> and I know that we don't think about, um, like, we don't think about that because I'm in a different socioeconomic group than those people, but they are literally my neighbors, and, like, growing up in L.A., like, uh, I have a lot of friends who are Hispanic and who are immigrants, and, like, uh, I, I, you know, I, like, I'm just talking about the way that it affects me. But what I mean is that, like, we're all interwoven. Like, there's no separating myself. Like, so I moved to Paris or I moved to Canada or something. Like, it doesn't, like, save our country. <laughs> and, like, hmm. I think that he really threatens our democracy. And, like, talking about throwing Hillary Clinton in jail and talking about putting Muslims in internment camps, like, it's so, it, like, I feel like there's an ahistoricity to, like, a lot of the way that people are looking at this election. Like, Hitler is evoked, but, like, we had concentration camps. I mean, we had internment camps in this country hmm. for Japanese people. And, like... Those were real things. Real things, and not that long ago. Like, there are people alive who were in those camps. So, yeah, like... But do you know what? I, what's funny is, like, not funny, tragic, is that... Like I grew up in Chicago, and like, I, right. and I moved to California in high school. I don't think I learned about Japanese internment camps until I moved to the West Coast, like where it was actually right. happening. Right, right. We learned about it in elementary school, but that was because it was like our local history. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's just it's incredibly scary to me, and it's incredibly scary to me to be like. um to also just know, even if he doesn't win, that like he's um, like uh, kicked up all of this intolerance and fervor and encouraged people to arm themselves. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I have mixed feelings about social media and, 
you know, the first year and a half I had my Twitter, I never used it. And I felt like I didn't know who I could even like how I could even add to a conversation online. And it's really only through talking about like being willing to talk about things like my stance on gun control and stuff like that. that makes me feel like it's worthwhile. Hmm. Like it's not really worth it to me to like, um, give a piece of myself away just to like promote my films, <laughs> even though obviously that's what I do when I give interviews too. Um, but, uh, like it's, it's an intimate part of yourself. You're giving away. It's your words and it's your thoughts and it's your time. But being able to do that and like talk about misogyny or talk about why voting is important or to talk about, you know, reproductive rights and Planned Parenthood. Like I know it sounds crazy earnest, but like that feels like a good trade off to me. Mm. I want more people to care. Me too. I feel like such a fool sometimes for caring about Yeah. Stuff. I know that sounds... You're so together for 22. I was such a mess at 22. Like, I never had clean underwear. I was always, like, going commando because I never had clean underwear. Like, I ate, like, bagels for every meal. <laughs> <laughs> and I basically roofied myself every night. Like, I'm just like, I can't believe how put together you are. I'm Good so, job. I'm so not. This is, this are you is... roofying yourself every night? Uh -huh. I actually am not... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was gonna make a dumb underwear joke. Um, do you wear clean underwear now? Uh, yeah. Oh, good. good. In fact, when I'm doing a play, my underwear is really clean because <laughs> I'm putting on new underwear all the time. I'm gonna wear like six pairs of underwear today because of this show. Wow. I have a different pair of underwear for every act. Wow. I know. That's I, what I'm telling you. I'm glad we went full circle. Yeah, there. we really did. <laughs> Horrible. Uh, um. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Thanks for your smart questions. Well, there it is. I'd like to thank Jared and Jennifer at Washington Square Films for helping arrange this episode of the podcast. You can catch Zoe in The Monster, now out in theaters, or check out Love, 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 the Beatlemania play at the Roundabout Theater. Also, if you have Netflix, you should check out her work in Meek's Cutoff and In Your Eyes. And somehow, if you have not watched Ruby Sparks yet, it can be rented for like $3 on Amazon. Um, it is worth watching. Lastly, a big thanks to Zoe for coming on the podcast. And, you know, just everything else. People. If you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, there's a chance you'd also enjoy our conversations with Kelly Reichardt, Wesley Morris, Kate McCooch, and many others. Secondly, if you thought what you heard today was pretty good, um, worth sharing, one, um, we'd appreciate if you did share the episode with someone else who has not heard the show before or with someone who has heard the show before. Um, and if you could take two minutes out of your day, I understand if you can't do that right now, um, but a review on iTunes would really help us reach new listeners. If you're not currently doing so already, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop us a line about anything, feel free to email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod, as well as our website, www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our music is by Vanilla, our executive producer is David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shanoi, social media by Maria Mayella, 
show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. Play us out, Barbara. Play us out, Barbara. Corey, do you know that's a Barbara Streisand song that he's remixing? Should we start saying, play us out, Barbara? All right, that's it. Bye, Corey. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.